there. Welcome to the Press Gallery, Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, the hard-to-get edition. My name is Sarah O'Donnell. It's Thursday, June 5th, and with me this week in the Journal newsroom to pick through a grab bag of political issues are three guests who are prizes in their own right. Health and politics reporter Keith Durine. Hi there. Senior reporter Sheila Pratt. Hello. And back from Prince Edward Island, all green gableified, is columnist Paula Simons. I prefer NNA winning columnist Paula yeah. Simons. <laughs> or green gableified, yeah. <laughs> Hello, Sarah. Hi. Keith, Sheila, everyone. Hello. This week, we want to tackle three topics that have nothing to do with Green Gables. Red Deer's Michener Center is back in the news, and it's even becoming entangled in the PC leadership debate. We'll talk about why. Then we'll move deeper into that darn leadership contest and ponder why Edmonton isn't feeling the love for any of the three candidates. And then we'll head back to Red Deer, figuratively, to talk about what happened in court with environmental charges on two major oil spills. And we'll wrap up, as always, with good stuff from the gallery. More than a year ago, in March 2013, the Redford government announced it was going to close Red Deer's Michener Centre, which is an institution that's home to about 120 severely disabled residents. Now, this move was controversial and polarizing from day one. Can someone lay down the background for me on why this decision was made and to what ends? Sure. I mean, to, to go into the background here, the Michener Center, um, I mean, this has been going on for a while. As Paula noted in her column today, uh, the Michener Center had some dark days in the past. This was the place where sexual sterilization was done uh, in the eugenics movement well in the past. But in more recent decades, it's been a place where obviously a lot of physically and uh, cognitively disabled people have lived uh, much of their whole lives. Uh, it's where they get their care. It's their home. The problem is the place is falling down. Um, and the government, I, I think, has been saying for a while that the place is eventually going to have to close. But the Redford government decided to kind of accelerate that process last year. In March of last year, they announced that they were going to start moving people out. And the plan was probably to get out about 125 people by this spring, spring of 2014. Now, it hasn't quite gone according to plan. We haven't gotten anywhere near that many people out yet. I think only about 30 people have, have moved. There's plans in place for 50 or so more. Um, but of course, it's been very controversial and it's been held up in part because opposition parties, the residents and the residents' families have been protesting this. So as you as you as you talked about this, the move hasn't happened, despite the fact that there was ten million dollars set aside for that. Paula, can you talk to me a little bit about so why haven't the residents been moved and what was the real issue? Was that the issue this week? There was more to it than that. Yeah, this is a very very complicated thing. It's like one of those Ukrainian nesting dolls where you just keep going deeper and deeper. I mean, part of the problem is that the people that they are moving out are the most vulnerable and high needs. There are actually about 100 people who are going to stay behind, who are a little more independent, who are going to remain in group homes that are on the edge of the site, integrated more into the Red Deer neighborhood. But the people that they are moving out are the most elderly, the most disabled, and the most vulnerable. To find housing for those people is extremely difficult. Uh, There are dozens and dozens of people who have apparently completed their exit plans. There are no group homes that are able to accommodate them. And even that $10 million has not been able to purchase the homes or the staff who have the skills to deal with these very, very high-needs populations. There are also some family members um, who are absolutely refusing to let their loved ones be moved out. But in point of fact, the fact that they are resisting makes almost no difference because there is no place for those people to go. 
And this is the problem with the plan from the start. I mean, the government is in a very peculiar situation. This facility at its height housed more than 2,000 people. It is a huge piece of property, more than 200 acres, and it's a beautiful piece of land which used to be on the outskirts of Red Deer and is now right in the middle of brand new subdivision development. So the land's extremely potentially valuable, and to fix up those buildings, some of which are filled with asbestos and are not wheelchair accessible, would be a huge expense. And the government hasn't been moving people in for about the last 35 years, so the population has been slowly dying off. But to close it now means breaking breaking a promise that was made to the residents and their families that nobody would be moved against their will. This came into the news this week when David Egan, who is running in the other leadership race, I mean, he's running for the leadership of the New Democrats and making as much splash as he can, he released a document which he received from some of those family members who were opposed to the move. It was a memo that said that uh, weekend nursing services, pharmacy services, and a bunch of recreation services were going to be cut back for residents because there are so few of them left. So, but there are still 100 of them left. Isn't that well, what you're there, 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 there are more than 100 of them left. Now, you can have an argument whether they need a resident nurse and pharmacist uh, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. I mean, maybe it's possible. This place is, as I say, it's no longer way on the outside of town. Uh, You could probably make an argument that they could be served well enough by the community. But the government didn't make that argument. They just cut the services. Uh, When I spoke to the Premier Dave Hancock uh, this week, he referred to this as a glitch and said it has now been corrected. Mr. Hancock is also unhappy, though, and I got the feeling speaking to him less with Mr. Egan than with Mr. Lukasik, Prentice, and McIver, uh, the Tory leadership candidates who have all jumped into this fray now, Lukasik the most forcefully saying that he thinks that the move-outs should be suspended and the whole decision to close the facility should be reviewed. Okay, so who would think it was a good idea to cut services right now? I, I don't at any at any level. I don't understand. Well, I think that's a really good question. Not only who would, but what would be the motivation? I mean, is right. it? We don't really know that. Is it really because you want to really send the message? This is happening. Get your people out. Uh, or is it? Oh well. We're close to pharmacies in downtown Red Deer. We don't need a pharmacist. So, who knows? The government didn't make the case. They just well, went ahead and did it. It's a glitch. Weren't you listening? A the glitch. premier said it was a glitch. <laughs> it was a glitch. But I, a glitch. I just was wondering if you got any deeper sense of how that glitch actually happened. Well, I mean, I, I, I think that, you know, the facility, as I said, was built for 2,000 people. There are still more than 600 full-time AUP staff working on that site with only about 200 residents now. So I think the government, at first I thought, you know, one of the sisters of one of the residents said to me, they're setting fires on the perimeter to smoke us out. And at first I thought, yes, they've cut these services to drive people out. And then when I spoke to Associate Minister Naresh Barjwaj, and he explained to me that they just don't have placements for people, I think it's less about wanting to move people out than it's just simply about trying to uh, rationalize service for what's a very small population of people. doesn't mean it was a right decision, but I understand how somebody just looking at the numbers decided to make it and not consider the political consequences. Yeah, like a lot of government glitches, they get lost in provincial bureaucracy, and we we never really find out exactly what happened. And the Sky Palace is another example of that. We still don't have all the answers as to how that actually happened. But it's. Uh, I think. I think Paul is absolutely right that um, somebody in the government took a look at the numbers, decided this was the way to go, and did not consider the political consequences. Right. So if the premier and uh, the associate minister are very firm that the plan is moving ahead to close this facility down, why would the leadership candidates want to wade into? this for the progressive conservative race and potentially contradict or not potentially out and out contradict the the sitting premier 
Well, I think there's political points to be made on this. There's a lot of people unhappy with it. It's obviously, there's a somewhat, I would think, a bit of a competence issue here by getting these people moving out without already preparing the way with proper group homes, etc. That's no small feat to find places for these people and to find staff for them. So I, I guess they, uh, certainly Thomas Lukasik thinks he can score a few political points on that. And certainly, have done yeah, it. certainly both. It doesn't look good on the no, party to no. be going after very vulnerable people. Our first topic took us down that road into the PC leadership race, so we might as well go there whole hog. Who seems to need the biggest boost right now among the Tory faithful? Oh, uh, I think Thomas Lukasik could use a stepladder to get himself <laughs> up into the race a bit. He's uh, not, not a stepladder. One of the, one of the sky reach yeah, giant yeah. crane arms. A crane, crane yeah. okay, perhaps, yeah. Which is maybe why he's the one who jumped in so quickly to the Mitchner Center. Right. I mean, clearly, he's, uh, who knows what his money situation is. It can't be that great. But he's, he's. I think he's struggling to find a place to either separate himself from the pack or to stay with it. I mean, um, McIver and Prentice... Prentice, I just don't see a whole lot of difference between him and Redford and status quo. And I think Thomas hasn't figured out exactly where to go in yet. And I'm sure he has like no ratings virtually in Calgary. Yes. Um, and he's pretty low profile here. So he's he's going to be looking. So we have some gut instinct on this, but there's also some polling, right? There's a new a yeah. new poll out What the, from Think HQ. What, what did that tell us? Well, it told us that what we all expected, that Jim Apprentice has a big, big lead right now, pretty much every, everywhere in the province. He and McIver are actually relatively close in, in Calgary. But the, the most interesting thing, to me anyway, was the Edmonton results in that all three candidates have higher disapproval ratings in Edmonton than they have approval ratings. Including Prentice. Including Prentice. And Thomas Lukasik, the hometown boy, the only candidate running from Edmonton, actually has a higher disapproval rating than the other two in his hometown, which is which is interesting. Why is this? Is Edmonton, are we just playing hard to get? What, what's going on here? Well, I, I think part of it is that uh, Rick McIver, for example, has almost no profile in Edmonton. If you look at those polling numbers, uh, the unde- you know the people who had no opinion on Rick McIver were up near 60%. He's just not known in Edmonton at all. Uh, with Lukasik, he's extremely well known in Edmonton. Uh, and although his positive numbers were higher uh, here than anywhere else and, and almost up, you know, on par with what Prentice's were in Edmonton for positives, his negative numbers were also high because... He's been in in cabinet a while in high profile portfolios and has had a chance to make a lot of enemies in Edmonton. But the Prentice numbers are the most interesting ones because whereas everybody in Calgary is, you know, ironing the red carpet for the coronation, Edmontonians are clearly not sold on Prentice at all. I think it's really interesting. I think Edmontonians and including many of the Tory elite are very disengaged in this process they're not jumping on the campaigns they're not getting involved because i think the disillusionment after redford was way deeper here than yeah, even in calgary and I mean, i'd we, add to that that they are not even engaged in any of the other political parties to yes. that much um even the wild rose which has a huge lead in the polls in the rest of the province their support's pretty soft in edmonton right now oh, and yeah so edmonton kind of doesn't like anybody any party any candidate right yeah, now. It's yeah. Ne- it's never been the a wild rose favorite in this wild roads never had a lot of support here either but but um but i, I think the, the disillusionment went deeper so there is one Edmontonian who wasn't playing hard to get at least. Uh, former Edmonton Mayor Stephen Mandel was out there today embracing, not today, yesterday, embracing one of the Monday. candidates. Mon- what what day of the week is it? <laughs> oh, it's gone so fast. 
Keith, just tell me, t- tell the people what happened, because I clearly <laughs> cannot. Um, it was an interesting event. It was held in a La Ronde restaurant at the top floor of the Chateau Lacombe. Um, apparently, Prentice has been staying there while he's been in Edmonton every time he visits Edmonton. You mean he's so across the street from us and he never comes to visit? That's I'm sad. I know, I know. One of these days, hopefully, we'll get him in for an Edport or something. But uh, yeah, it was quite a warm event. You could see that there was a genuine affection between Mandel and Prentice. I'd, I'd never seen them together before, of course, but they do say that they've shared this friendship that goes back at least six, seven, eight years when Prentice was uh, Minister of Indian Affairs for the federal government uh, and Mandel spoke very glowingly about Prentice um, you know that he he's a, has a willingness to understand the complex issues that cities need uh, including um, you know our urban Aboriginal population um, and so he Mandel I mean I think the strongest endorsement he said is that he's kind of hinting he might get it back into politics if Prentice wins the premiership that he would be uh, willing to serve as sort of a key member of Apprentice government. It's not wholly shocking because Patricia Masuka, who was Stephen Mandel's longtime chief of staff, is the campaign chair for Jim Prentice in Edmonton. So it would have been quite shocking if Mandel hadn't endorsed Prentice on that basis. But certainly it's a measure of the confidence that Prentice has in Mandel. I mean, that they had a press conference to say the former mayor of Edmonton is endorsing you for the leadership. That struck me as odd. Well, it's also not surprising given the tension between Lukasik and Mandel, which goes back to a right. very famous <laughs> speech where, <laughs> where, where Mandel, without warning, Lukasik took some pretty firm shots at him in public. And, and Lukasik took one back. And yes. Indeed. So, so there's never corn been any... Flakes, yeah, right, flakes. yeah, he took a shot right in the cornflakes. Yeah, yeah, right. Absolutely. So let's remember that's the background. So I'm sure Mandel would be happy to see anybody but Lukasik, but mostly he's friends with Jim. I, I wonder <laughs> how much of a former mayor's endorsement, how far that will go towards swaying other Edmontonians because I don't know I don't have a feeling that yeah, any of these guys are going to win people yeah, over a, maybe yeah. and besides joining another party I'm not I'm I not talked sure. to some political scientists about that very question and the answer was um, this is not going to help all that much in the party election area that uh, it's you know when it's only party members people who are actually going to buy the memberships it may not make that much of a difference but if Mandel actually does win or sorry Prentice actually does win and Mandel actually starts running uh, as a candidate that could help a lot in the general election we, we just talked about how Edmonton is not feeling the love from the PCs right now or vice versa and therefore Mandel I think still carries a lot of political influence in this town mm-hmm. and he could sway a lot of Edmontonians to look at the PCs again well let's move back down the highway back to Red Deer where I interesting case unfolded in a courtroom this week. Sheila, you were there when pipeline company Plains Midstream agreed to plead guilty to environmental charges. And this involved two major pipeline spills. So talk about those spills and and what Plains Midstream admitted by pleading guilty to these charges. Yeah, these were two very uh, important spills or high profile spills. One was uh, in 2011 up near Peace River, which is the largest spill in Alberta in the last 30 years, 29,000 barrels. And what came out in court were detail we hadn't seen before, which was in their little uh, um, control room down near Red Deer, the operator of this pipeline noticed something 
call it a spill uh, alarm, but instead of shutting the pipeline down, he just couldn't figure out why the pressure was low, so he kept pressing the button, and three times he restarted that pipeline, and three times wow. more yeah. and more oil flowed into the swamp. Uh, it's so, the Homer Simpson School of Pipeline yeah, Management. Yeah, and it was revealed that two days earlier he just had special training. Anyway, that, so that that was a huge... So that was the little buffalo That was spill. the little buffalo spill, okay. and the other one was more high profile because it was in the Red Deer River near Sundry, and the oil you know, went downstream towards Red Deer, and it could have been very, very bad. And the charges on that were Federal Fisheries Act because it's a flowing river, but secondly, they they didn't report the spill quick enough. It took them hours, and Plains Midstream itself was not the ones that discovered it was their spill. Somebody, the farmers discovered the spill and finally told them, so they were, um, uh, that was their charge. So $1.3 in fines for all of them. I, I I think what was interesting was we know we all know the highest fine so far is Sincrude's three million dollars for the sixteen hundred dead ducks. So how does this stack up? Well, for some pretty major spills on a major river that could have polluted Red Deer, there were only there were two charges, and for the most volume up in Little Ruffalo, one charge, which was they didn't take action quick enough to stop the flow. They certainly didn't. They were pushing the button. So I, I was surprised there were only three charges in these and um and these are the first i'll say in in the case of the red river the first laid by the new energy regulator which as we all know took over environmental enforcement away from the government just last month right so. and they lay i mean these charges on the red deer spill were just laid last week yes and just w- days coming before up the statute, statute of limitations and yes. then they they settled it just days later in court so yes so I the guess. whole the whole package was settled by a hmm. an agreement yeah Huh. I'm trying to I'm trying to figure out how I feel. I, I'm still uncertain about about the size of the fines and what this says about, you know, the various laws, I guess federal and provincial. Is it a five hundred thousand dollar maximum fine per charge? Yes, and they got they got four hundred and fifty thousand they got fifty thousand dollars off for pleading guilty. That's to sign a cooperation so you give them credit. It's a it's a drop in the bucket, of course, for these companies. They're making millions of dollars. Yeah, <laughs> they'll, they'll pay I mean, for that spilling, in before lunch, spilling right? Spilling in a running river mm-hmm. versus like I, I like animals and I like ducks and I don't want to see them coated in oil, but yeah. I mean that was a contained site and I, I'm surprised for Syncrude. And Syncrude, I think, you know, arguably was making some kind of failed but good faith effort to keep the ducks off the pond. Well, not not at that particular time. Their their that their deterrence had not kicked in. That was it the was problem. Spring. They were late getting yeah. the deterrence yeah. going. Yeah, that's, so yeah, they, that's uh, true. they actually weren't in that so, case. So here's but, a question I have, because mm-hmm. last time you were asking questions, I'm going to ask Sheila a question, because yeah. I don't know the answer, and I'm going to confess my ignorance here on podcast, Bill. <laughs> so if if the companies are are negligent and liable to these fines... Do they have to pay anything towards civilly towards the cor- the the cost of the cleanup as well, or does the taxpayer completely absorb the cost of the? Cleanup? Oh no, they they pay for the cleanup. That's completely separate. That has about to be done. Million yeah, that, that costs case. seventy million okay. and so, forty so, million on the Red Deer River. Case. All right, so, so that's is, already done. This so is this is, this is, this is for, punitive this is on top punishing. of that. Yes. Right. All right. Well, okay. About, so yeah. if 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 they've paid for the cleanup, then I'm less well, angry. They have to. Yeah. yeah. Well. <laughs> yeah. You'd think, yeah. but um, yeah. so if they've had to pay millions, tens of millions for the cleanup, I'm less angry about the size of the fine. But really, I think everybody should have to pay more. I think. I think the other thing to remember is this Plains Midstream was the company that provoked the ill-fated pipeline review mm. by the government, which then they sat on for months and months, and we all understood why when it came out because it really actually didn't address the issues of pipeline safety. Well, that's, in any that's what I wanted way. to ask. Is I mean, do we have any more confidence in Alberta's pipeline? 
safety than we did two years ago at when the you know when there was a lot of focus on this after this Red Deer River spill. It depends on who you ask, but I would say most people would probably say no at this point. This this is really an issue of credibility for the provincial government because we're going all over the world advocating for us to build these giant pipelines around the continent, uh, the Keystone, the Gateway, and perhaps a new pipeline to Eastern Canada, and. We're telling people that pipeline is the best way to move these products. It's the safest and way. It's the safest yeah. way. And yet, if we can't protect our own pipelines uh, and, and hammer the companies that cause spills in our own province, what does that say about our credibility in Alberta? Hmm. Well, the company says they've taken many measures to improve their pipeline response. And an issue that comes up here is that age of some of these pipelines, these are 40 to 50 year old. And in the case of the Red Deer River, and there will be many more of these, that pipe was less than a meter underneath the bed of the river. So of course, when the flood came down, because it was a flash flood that spring, it just eroded all the dirt and silt that was protecting the pipeline. So the pipeline's exposed and immediately kind of broke off like a straw. There'll be lots more pipes like that. That's right. Well, we'll continue to follow up on on this and pipeline safety. I think we actually have more questions than answers than we do on this one. We'll have to update more on that. So let's move to good stuff from the gallery. This is our weekly segment where we suggest a good read, something interesting to watch or listen to that has a political angle. Sometimes it's really political. Sometimes it's so tangential as to almost just be a good suggestion that has nothing to do with politics. So Keith, what, how political are you getting this week? Uh, I'm not sure how political it is. My, my good stuff is um, today, actually, the Health Quality Council of Alberta released two reviews into the quality of home care. Or, oh, or this, the will quality, get, quality this will assur- get political. That's right. Okay, yes, quality, you, quality assurance, anyway, of how we, how we uh, in our home care and our continuing care sector. Um, and this is very processy. It's very detail heavy. Um, it's not exactly light bedtime reading, but I do think it is important. Uh, I've just started to go through it, but there are some very interesting findings in there. For anyone who might be looking at going into continuing care at some point in their life or have a family member that has to use continuing care, uh, this is something that they might want to take a look at. Okay, thank you. I have a suggestion that also is not light reading, but I think is is worth reading. I've been thinking a lot uh, after the collapse of Federal Bill C-33, the First Nations Control of First Nations Education Act, about First Nations education in Alberta. And as part of my research, um, one my editor, Margot Goodhand, reminded me of a thesis that Elise Stolte posted, uh, written by Morris Manyfingers, as part of her excellent series on First Nations education, Alberta Broken Pencils. So Morris's thesis is up on Scribd, and you can read it. And it has a big title, uh, Analysis of uh, Jurisdiction, Resources, and Accountability in Basic Education Programs, colon, An Analysis of the Issues, Challenges, and Current Realities Facing First Nations Students in Alberta. But despite that big title, what this basically is, his thesis is an excellent primer on the history of First Nations education in Alberta, on reserve, and, and the challenges in current day. So I'm going to post the link to that document on Scribd because if you care about this issue, and you should, I'm going to get a little preachy, you really, really should, then you should read this because it, and it's uh, a great resource. I'm, I'm so, del- you know, it's not often I can point to someone's thesis and say, darn it, you should read this, but we all, really all should read this thesis. And, and it was uh, written in 2010, but it's still applicable. 
Sheila and Paula, I'm hoping one of you can lighten the mood from Keith well, and I. I. We're just... <laughs> I'm going to give you very short reads. Okay. So that's, Thank you, that's Sheila. That's very good. So in um, because there was interesting uh, Newsweek, anything by Desmond Tutu, <laughs> including right. an interesting column he wrote in The Guardian uh, last summer about the oil patch and greenhouse gases. Um, but he has many wonderful spiritual books to read too if you uh, can quickly google them online but i'd also in in um to go along with that on the opposite side i would like everybody to read a column by a guy named christopher reagan in the globe and mail about canada's economy and how environment and the economy have to work together and he's with the cd howe institute and it's a very interesting read i think mr prentice should read it too hmm Mm. Paula, I'm going to talk about sex. So, uh, I, lightening the mood. Lightening I the hope. mood. I don't. Well, no. not, not precisely. Oh. Yesterday afternoon, uh, Peter McKay, the federal justice minister, introduced uh, Canada's new prostitution legislation. Oh, you're not lightening this, the mood no, this, at all. No, this, this was in response to the Supreme Court, which struck down the existing prostitution legislation and said it was unconstitutional because it created uh, unsafe work environments for sex trade workers. And so, Peter McKay, having read this decision carefully, has come out with legislation that gives the giant middle finger to the Supreme Court and instead of making things better, makes things about 11 times worse. And so I would like to recommend so that so that you understand that this is people across the political spectrum who are not happy with this legislation. Uh, a wonderful column by John Iveson from the National Post called Peter McKay's Prostitution Law, A Failure on All Counts. Uh, Mr. Iveson tweeted yesterday, if this law is constitutional, I'm a banana. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and, and Sorry, it, I should laugh right into the microphone. It, it's, it's a short piece, but well worth reading. And I would also recommend from The Economist on their website, uh, their own analysis of Canada's prostitution laws called Dearer for Johns, uh, which talks about what a complete failure this uh, uniquely Canadian model promises to be. Um, uh, it has a wonderful line in it. Got a complex social issue? There's a prison for that. Oh, that sounds good. Okay, thanks for those links, everybody. That's it for this week. You can find a video excerpt from our show on the Edmonton Journal's website, and our producer and journal videographer, Ryan Jackson, pulls that together. You can find that on edmontonjournal.com. You can find this show and all previous episodes on the Edmonton Journal's website in the opinion section. So edmontonjournal.com slash opinion. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash the press gallery, iTunes. Just search us and find us. We could use some more reviews and ratings, please. And you can find us on SoundCloud as well. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week in the press gallery. Thank you.